0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. We're just coming off a successful Real Science lecture series of five webinars where we preview the new 2021 Dairy NRC a chapter at a time, and we're looking forward to having these sit-down conversations with each of our presenters and their guests. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell, one of your hosts at the Real Science Exchange. Tonight, we have the pleasure of welcoming uh, Dr. Lou Armentano. Lou tackled the fats and energy sections of the new dairy NRC for us during our webinar series. Uh, Dr. Ar- uh, Armentano, welcome to the exchange. Glad to be here. Lou, before we dive into the meat of the fats and energy section, uh, tell us what's in your glass.
1: Oh, I have, because my scotch is apparently on a FedEx truck okay which is probably weaving down the road but uh, this is a local brew it's a fantasy factory it's a IPA and it's made here in uh Madison in fact um which is uh, Ale Asylum beer this yeah, is made yeah. in their Hopalicious expanded and they made a new brewery and this is made in their old brewery so this is uh this is not made by Ale Asylum it's called Fantasy Factory it's uh, it's awesome. It's got a picture of a cat with a 50 caliber pistol riding on a unicorn with flames coming out. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an awesome beer. Mike, you've never had this. I think it's quite good.
0: I will definitely put that one on my, uh, my short yeah, list. For sure. Yeah. If you like IPAs. I love IPAs. Lou, it's been 20 years since the last NRC and now it's i guess it's called the nasem n-a-s-e-m can you tell us a little bit about the process that was employed in developing the energy and fat section of the new dairy nrc
1: well um we did meet as a group um we were assigned uh, individual chapters um i did the fat chapter and i guess i can say was a co-author on a couple other chapters i actually was not a co-author on the energy chapter but um the uh, uh so we we got together and we got our assignments and then we would do our work on our own and then we would come back and say what we did and put our ideas before the rest of the committee and uh, then you begin piecing the whole thing together because it's all integrated right so the the protein model had to have energy estimates in it and those energy estimates had to be the the final ones right so when they're developing their everything in this NRC is is based on some sort of meta regression analysis to to an extreme, it was done somewhat in the last NRC, but to an extreme that's at least an order of magnitude more. Pretty much every chapter in some sort of regression analysis behind it, I think. And uh, in order to do the protein, they had to have the energy values. And in order to have the energy values, uh, Mike had to have some estimate of fatty acid digestibility, and he also had to have information from the carbohydrate chapter. So all this stuff is integrated. And sort of at the end, I, the protein sort of came at the end because it had to uh so really the opportunity to go back and change anything was pretty minimal too uh so it did take a long time Uh, it is integrated but um it's quite the process i should say from an energy point of view uh when you introduce mike this will be important uh mike was the lead uh on a, a usda grant where we were trying to um uh, work on breeding values for um, improving feed efficiency in cattle. And Mike and I and um, Rob Templeman and and uh, Kent Weigel, and I'm going to forget Wendy's name, my gosh, but the uh, five of us got together. Oh, and a uh, uh, gentleman from Holland. We got together, we did this grant. So during that process, Mike and I really did a lot of talking about energy balance and um, it became really obvious that the last RC was, was very confusing at terms of dealing with body weights, changes in body energy. It was just really hard to work with. Right. And, uh, I think Mike really got inspired there to help make the new system simpler. So, so Mike and I actually know each other in grad school. So we go back a long way. So we've talked a lot about energy during this process.
0: Well, I see you brought Mike along with you as a guest tonight. do want you go ahead and introduce him.
1: Well, Mike Vandahar really doesn't need any introduction. He was, uh, you know, blessed by being in graduate school as a young graduate student when I was a senior graduate student. So uh, he had somebody to look up to. And uh, I'm sure he still admires me as his hero. Yeah, he's, he's sure. Faculty member of Michigan State, everybody knows Mike is uh, uh, author of Spartan, uh, a lot of practical experience and energy and also in in effort growth. So both areas that needed serious attention uh, from the last NRC.
0: Yeah. So thank you for that. Uh, thanks for joining us tonight, Mike. Uh, first, tell us what you're drinking. And then what did you find most interesting or perhaps most challenging about being the lead author on the energy chapter?
2: Okay. Well, I am drinking uh, a beer from Michigan called, uh, from Schwartz Brewery called Humaloopalicious. And it is the best IPA I've ever had. It is my go-to. Um, I'd love to challenge you with this one, Lou, because... I have never had anything from Wisconsin close to as good as a (laughs) Michigan IPA. Not even spotted cow. Oh gosh. (laughs) I love the name. Unfortunately, it just doesn't, doesn't meet up what it's up to uh, with the name. What I found interesting or challenging was first off, as Lou said, I've been interested in energy a long time. I've been um, when the first in our, well, back in the, not the first the 89 was what the sixth edition Um, I poured through that thing as I tried to make sense of how to put it into a model that could be practically used on farms called Spartan Um, and then when 2001 came out I was frustrated by many of the things in there that were hard to implement in a model you would use on a farm and some of them were hard to even figure out what the equation should be things didn't always match, but I, now I understand. You know, it's a huge job. I realize that we started this in 2014, didn't we? I think so. So I, right? I realize I've been one quarter of my academic career. I've been working on NRC. Smokes, uh, and that was an this one. On this yeah, part, this yeah. one and this one. I was a reviewer for the 2001, and uh, there were a lot of things that I liked about it, and things that I found frustrating. And so, when I got asked if I was interested uh, to do this one, I jumped on the chance because I thought I there's some things we can do better. And uh, so, I found it um, really fun. I mean, I got I love working with Lou, Mike Gallen, Bill Weiss, Richardman. We have just a bunch of people. On our committee, that are some of my favorite people to see when I go to meetings. So, you know, I really enjoyed the chance to work on this with them. Um, yeah, there were frustrations, lack of data here and there, but, but overall, it was a rewarding experience, and I, I feel pretty good about the product we came out with.
0: Excellent. Looking forward to the conversation tonight. Uh, tonight, we're also welcoming back one of our special co hosts, uh, that'd be Dr. Glenn Ains. Uh, Dr. Ains, welcome back.
3: Thank you, Scott. Good to be here again.
0: So I know you're chomping at the bit on this. When we've been talking about some of the questions you wanted to uh, go over, but first things first, what's in your glass tonight? Uh,
3: tonight I'm drinking a uh, rum and Coke. Uh, this is a Cape Coral, Florida. I love the name, the Wicked Dolphin. So yeah, it's quite uh, it's quite a nice one for Good. local.
0: Good. Well, tonight I'm drinking a Macallan 12, of so I'm going know. with a scotch tonight. Yeah, and I, <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah. I understand, uh, Mike, that's actually, you ordered a scotch as well, or one of you did, I and, did. And, and, and it's it hasn't made it yet. Like but, blue, uh, mine
2: is on a UPS truck. So I'm
0: having my Macallan tonight. Uh, kind of the backstory of that is in honor of a couple friends. That'd be Dr. Steve Putney and uh, Dr. Uh, Neil Forsberg. Um, we had the opportunity to drink... McCallen, a much older one and much more expensive one, and as I recall, we we've uh, run up some pretty large uh, tabs with that. And I'm also uh, honoring uh, Dr. Neil Forsberg tonight because he he wrote a, a book. Uh, it's called Climbing uh, Kilimanjaro: Escaping the Metaphorical Couch, and so uh, it's available on on uh, Amazon. That's where I got mine. It's a very interesting read, especially if you know Neil. And uh, if you don't know Neil, I recommend uh, meeting him sometime. He's, he's a great gentleman and a good friend. So with that, why don't we, uh, we get started. Mike, can you summarize the biggest challenges in the FATS energy sections from the 2001 edition as it compares to the one that's coming out?
2: So I'll just say the things that I, uh, we really wanted to fix with the uh, 2001 version was, for one, um, The discount factor was very difficult to make sense of um and it the the discount applied to the to the whole diet digested energy value um in the text they talk about that it's a that you use a fat corrected tdn value to adjust with increasing levels of intake uh to adjust or depress Uh, the the de value of a feed of a diet Uh, in the actual program they didn't do the fat correction Uh, in Spartan I did it the way the text said to do it not the way the program did it and um but it was pretty clear that it that it depressed digestibility too much at high levels of intake and what was also kind of frustrating is that At high levels of intake, if you, if you were trying to use this as a formulation program and you put in that you had a a diet, uh, that was mostly forage, you went, once you got to a four times maintenance intake, it didn't matter if your diet was mostly forage or half grain, half forage, because once you had a higher TDN value of the diet um, intake was depressed much faster. Now, of course, cows couldn't eat at four times maintenance intake, but the program as a formulation program didn't know that. So when you I said, would try Mike, to
1: Mike, you said intake was depressed. You mean digestibility was.
2: Depressed. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Digestibility depression. But when you try to teach students about balancing diets, they don't always have the practical experience to realize that, OK, well, a cow's not going to eat uh, enough energy at, uh, if she's fed an all hay diet. Right. So how the digestibility depression worked was just kind of frustrating uh, and hard to implement. The other one was that there were some simple things like protein was overvalued uh, in the 2001 system. In the 1989 system, we put everything on it like a TDN value. So protein and starch had the same energy value. But in the 2001 system, protein had a 20 had a, an energy value that was almost 20 percent higher than starch because. Um, the 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 uh, right uh, when you when you look at when you look at the ME value of protein, or if you go to the grocery store and you look at protein and carbs, they're both about four kcals per gram in the grocery store label. Right. And that's because if you use protein for maintenance, you have to get rid of the amino group as urinary nitrogen which takes away 20% of the energy because we can't oxidize that amino group uh, and get any ATP from it. While the, the, the 1989 system didn't give protein any value other than if it was at maintenance, the 2001 system went completely the other way and said that protein is worth a lot more than starch. So as a formulation program, if you wanted to meet the energy requirement of a high producing cow, one way you could do it, with 2001 was feed them a really high protein diet because protein was worth more than starch. So we, we and we corrected for that. So I'm, I was happy we had a, we're working with Ermius Krabab. We, uh, we, uh, put in a correction so that when you go from DE, you subtract out your expected urinary energy loss, you subtract out your expected methane loss and you get ME for the diet. I think those are both, you know, are they perfect? Will we improve on that in the future? For sure. But we at least have a framework now that can be built upon with better numbers in the future. This is the way biology works. And the old systems didn't really work the way biology did. Uh, I'm sure there's something else that will come to mind that those are a few that that I was thinking about.
1: From my perspective, uh, I'd like to make two comments on the big Well, maybe three comments on big changes in the energy chapter. One is that um, and using a lot of data from the USDA and also existing published data, I believe, the um, cows have changed. So the maintenance requirement for cows has changed. It hasn't changed because we started figuring out a different way. It changed because the cows have biologically changed with genetic uh, selection of cows for being more potential for milk production and more dairy like. Uh, those cows just use more energy just to maintain themselves so that's a big change and uh and probably i i think mike gets defensive about making the change from point oh eight to point one but probably should have been more <laughs> you yeah know, uh because, because Ken, point, it's still changing yeah. <laughs> it's still changing so that's one big thing
2: can uh, i comment on that before you go yeah, on sure oh wait no, we yeah yeah <laughs> so so uh, yeah, Lou is exactly right on that, because uh, but what's interesting is our point one came from a reevaluation of the Beltsville data, and the point one was for the data from ni- the mid 1970s to about 1990s, and that's what 25 years ago. And in our feed efficiency project, uh, Rob Templeman's analysis of trying to understand what are the things that influence dry matter intake in high producing modern cows cows from the last 10 years or even five years uh, it looks like the maintenance requirement is higher than 0.1 perhaps we should have done that um yeah we just weren't sure we were ready to it's uh everywhere throughout something
1: like this you know we say it needs to be data based right well the data is all in the past right and here's one place where maybe we could have we could have i'm not criticizing what mike did i you know you have to justify what you did the number has to come from somewhere but it's one of those places where maybe we should have skated to where the puck was going to be instead of where it's been right but when you base things on data you're automatically looking back um i want to say a couple of things about the energy adjustments so uh, one of the things that became very confusing so the reading the energy chapter and trying to integrate the fat part into the old energy chapter in the nrc7 it literally gave me a headache every time i read it okay and i'm sure i've read that more than any times more than anybody else on the earth and i'm still confused okay because i think there are things in there that it says it does one thing and it does another but it's just very very confusing and there's all sorts of little exceptions for fat that drive you nuts uh it's just impossible to understand it really is um well you know, I'm kind of, I think if I can't understand it, nobody can, maybe somebody can, but I can't. Uh, so I'm glad it changed because now I don't have to understand it anymore. Okay. Uh, new one's much, much, much simpler. The other thing is that one of the things about fat in particular, but with every nutrient, the DE to ME conversion was done on a nutrient basis. Okay. In the current, um, NR, in the current NRC8, we get to DE, we adjusted the DE for for intake there's still an intake effect that reduces digestibility it's just smaller than it was before because it was too big before and then the de to me is based on the amount of nitrogen and methane that's going to be produced by that diet okay and so it's a holistic integrated evaluation of the diet uh not the nutrients themselves and uh, that's an important distinction uh because actually for fat, it's very important because in fact, fat has associative effects where it uh, decreases uh, methane production. So it actually has an associative effect that increases the D to ME um, conversion for all the nutrients in the feed, right? So that actually in the old NRC, the fat D to ME was a hundred percent. Now it's actually more than a hundred percent, if you will, which is kind of hard for people to grasp.
2: Yeah. The other
1: thing I, I want to say is one more uh, point that people may not quite get, in addition to simplifying the whole idea, I mean, intake now is expressed as a percent of body weight, not as a multiple of maintenance, okay? and That makes it way easier, and I'm sure no less accurate to do it that way, okay? It's just simpler, okay? The other, and and the degree of depression has been reduced. Uh, it only reduces uh, carbohydrate, right? Fiber and, and uh, starch, right? Mm-hmm. Right digestibility it doesn't affect fat digestibility or protein digestibility, right? So um, yeah. and the other thing that's different, even so the depression is less, it's limited to certain nutrients. But a really important thing is that the what is considered the baseline is no longer maintenance, okay, the baseline is now accounting 3.5% of body weight. So that's a lactating cow, that's producing, you know, a reasonable amount of milk, okay. So when you look at the adjustment, you know, from that cow to a really high producing cow in the herd, it's not nearly as big of an adjustment. Okay. And that's partly because the depression is less, but also the base is much higher than it was before. So, so it'd be easy for people to get confused. You know, in some places it's not going to adjust at all. While the depression is still there, it's just built into the baseline 3.5x. You actually can get elevation if you have a, a lower producing cow, the digestibility will actually go up base if she's eating less than three and a half percent
2: and if she's so, eating a low starch diet or a low starch you definitely diet. see that yeah
1: so yeah. I think those are important differences that are um you know people just need to realize it's doing that um, but the whole thing I, I, it's so funny I, I when I read when I was going over this and reading the energy chapter I it, it just it it just doesn't give me a headache you know, and and that's worth a lot, right? If it's <laughs> if it's more accurate, great. If it's easier to understand, that's great too. So, is yeah.
2: it, <laughs> but you but you now drink higher quality alcohol. So that, is that part of it? Yeah, but I, mean, I you, know, the you, level I drink it. Sports. Doesn't matter.
3: <laughs> <laughs> the relative importance so of would, methane in these equations. Where does where
2: does the data from the literature come on?
1: Yeah, good question. That so, was
2: Hermes. Uh, yeah. Ermius had a paper. Well, mm-hmm. he was on the paper and uh, he had, and and they had a, an equation that was based on uh, amount of fat in the, well, a number of factors, but fat influenced NDF digestibility, predictors of methane. And uh, NDF was in there. And one thing that, that we did do is he went back, because I, I thought, why don't you have, Digestible NDF. That's what that's what matters here. Is not in the, if NDF sure. isn't digested, we don't care. It doesn't affect methane, or it shouldn't. And he went back and put in digestible NDF. Sometimes they, I, I don't know how accurate all of their values were for digested NDF, but that that equation did a pretty good job of predicting methane. And I heard Lou's um, talk from last week, and you know, probably. It's possible some fatty acids do more than others. That's not in that equation. So there's room for improvement, but I think we have the basis for a good system to move forward on. So So uh, from my perspective,
1: I, and actually I think Mike's too, you know, we kind of thought, oh, the last NRC was fairly favorable to fat, right? Um, so we definitely didn't go in there trying to make it better. I didn't anyway. Right? I didn't uh, either. You know, we had made this decision early on that the 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 DME would be done at the diet level. So I actually had nothing to do with the. I'm not I'm not questioning the final equation respect, but I had actually nothing to do with the methane equation. Okay, the selection of it, and uh, didn't know fat was going to reduce methane that much until the other committee members came back and reported on it. Um, so it's it's very interesting using all this meta analysis to drive this you know, make sense, right? Because these are diets that people have fed and recorded. Now, they're not the average of all diets fed in the world and not the average of all diets fed in the US. They're just the diets where people happen to measure methane production and also, you know, measure these inputs. So I was a little nervous, you know, because you, you pick out the best equation and, you know, maybe the first equation, so I think the final equation's got, actually it's got dry matter intake in it. It's got digestible NDF in it, but of course, you know, NDF does make a difference, right? Because it's part of the dry matter intake, right? And then it's got fat. And I thought, oh, well, you know, what if like the next best equation, which is like, almost as good, right? Doesn't have fat in it. Okay. But when Ermaeus presented this, the top five methane producing equations uh, had fat in them. So, you know, there's really no reason to pick any other equation, they're all gonna have fat and all with a negative effect on methane um but it wasn't necessarily from a database that was just to, to determine the effect of fat on methane right it was it was from a broader database because we needed one equation that would estimate methane from all the dietary inputs and it's one of the things that that happens i mean we have the intake uh equation we're not doing the intake chapter right now but the intake the the nrc predicts an intake based on diet okay As one based on cow and then a new one that's based on diet and uh mike allen put that equation together and when he did fat did not show up in that equation all right so he looked for all the things in the diet that affected intake and fat didn't when you're looking for what overalls the diet explains things you have to realize things in the diet are correlated so you don't want to put a lot of correlated um, independent variables in an equation well both mike allen and i when we did searches in the literature where people fed fat that was the nature of the experiment we did find a reduction in intake so those are two different questions right i mean one is sort of limiting itself a little bit to cause and effect equations where you fed fat but then of course we didn't look at all the other things that were changing in those diets right but then if you look for predicting intake overall fat didn't make the grade compared to other things in the, in the diet that were more important and presumably were correlated with fat so same thing happened with methane mean, the methane production. We have one methane production equation that affects the energy chapter. It affects fat energy values. It affects environmental issues and it's the best one we could come up for. And fat is not in there by a fluke. Okay. If the top five equations include fat, it belongs in there. Now, whether we have exactly the right number, whether it reflects all fats, you know, equally, uh, that's a good question.
2: I Like, uh, Lou said I, I'm not a proponent. I, in the past, I've not been a big proponent of adding fat to every dairy cow's diet. One of the, one of the things that yes, the model is integrated, but on one, the one hand, so it's integrated, but to some extent we haven't, we haven't seen how all of it fits together until just recently when the software was really developed. So up until that point, uh, yeah, I assumed fat was going to increase the any density of a diet, not just because it has a higher energy density itself, but because of its effect on decreasing methane. But now that everything's together, um, we see that. And, and part of me was thinking, Oh gosh, I didn't, I didn't mean to put together a model that did that, but that's what it is. And, um, The only thing I would add to that is, you know, both Mike, uh, Mike's had, uh, Mike Allen has had a a nice publication from 2001 that showed that fat can reduce intake in this latest paper that we did uh, on looking at dietary factors that can affect that to predict intake. um, One of the things that was difficult about that uh, paper was that, what we feed cows is highly correlated with how much milk they produce so the diets for and and we in in that model milk production is important for predicting intake so he had to come up with some complicated advanced statistical techniques to try to make sense of how do you deal with the fact that we ha- we have cows fed that are producing a lot of milk or fed different types of diets and the cows that are not producing much milk. And, uh, I would advise people to read the paper, uh, Sousa et al. Um, or no, I think balance off. He's the first author. So Mike's the first author on that paper. I I advise them to read that, but it's a, it's a nice paper. It does the best job of any, uh, equation yet at, 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 uh, predicting intake based off diet and animal factors, but it's not perfect. And we know that high fat diets can depress intake sometimes. So when people use the model, they just need to be aware that, okay, remember fat can depress intake. This model doesn't show that in that intake prediction. So don't just do the thing that looks best to the computer. Use your head.
0: (laughs) So far, gentlemen, we've just been talking about fat as an energy source. And we, we'd lumped, we, Balchem, lumped uh, the, the fat and energy sections together just because we wanted to limit this to five webinars in the series. But but we know that fatty acids are, are much more than energy or can be. They're very biologically active compounds. And I'm thinking back to uh, some research done by one of your colleagues, uh, uh, Dr. Van Der Haar, uh, Adam Locke, how did you guys uh, account for that, or did you uh, account for some of those issues in, in the NRC?
2: thing about partitioning and how some fatty acids can alter partitioning, we did not even attempt. We talk about it in the energy chapter, but we did not attempt to model that. That's something I hope that we can do a better job of in the future. You know, we know that starch can affect partitioning of nutrients between say body repletion and uh milk production but we did not attempt to include that
1: yeah lou so um we had done a, a literature review that's hidden in an australian uh, nutrition journal but uh, that looked at different fatty acids so one thing that's definitely in the new nrc is we, we we switched from ether extract to fatty acid and so when we did that we are actually reporting the fatty acid content of the feeds and we do that because we think it's important okay uh the the crunching number part of the model just talks about total fatty acid digestion and it does not uh in any way you know if you change the oleic to linoleic to linolenic it the result of the model is not going to change okay um however the chapter talks quite a bit about how those fatty acids uh do affect milk fat and, uh, you know, the, the bottom line of the story is that whenever you feed uh, C18 fatty acids, in um, generally the, there's not a lot of feeding of C18-0. So when you feed C18-1, C18-2, C18-3, what always happens is that the milk C18 yield, okay, goes up. But the milk short chain fatty acids that are made in the mammary gland goes down. Okay. And that effect is clearly bigger for linoleic acid. Okay. and As a matter of fact, you can feed so much linoleic acid that you actually start reducing milk C18 yield. So it's sort of a curvilinear response. So that's discussed in the chapter. Um, you know, there's a report that shows you the fatty acid levels in the chapter and, you know, by all means, um, I, I, (laughs) you know, if you run this model, right and then the cows do something different, right, you know the cows are wrong, okay, guaranteed, right? Or your diet's not really what you said it is. No, it's not, you know, the model's wrong, okay? But if the model's not predicting something, there's gotta be a reason for that, okay? And so that's when you need to use your brain and you need to look at the intakes the cows are actually doing, you need to look at, you know, is my linoleic acid content in this diet too high, okay? maybe it's too low it's an essential fatty acid right so so those outputs are there uh they're fairly prominent and and people and they are fairly accurate now because we have you know actual measurements of fatty acid and to measure total fatty acid you measure the individual fatty acids and add them up so so the individual fatty acid data is there uh people should react to it but the model's not going to do it for them Uh, another thing that's also very useful in that respect is that. you can now get from DHI, you can actually get a profile of the de novo, the C16 and the C18 fatty acids in milk. And that's very informative about what's going on. Uh, because what's happening most of the time when you add oils is that the C18 in milk is going up and the shorter fatty acids are going down. And if you look at total fat, you would say nothing's happening. Okay. But something is definitely happening almost all the time. And that's, again, discussed at length in the chapter, but there's not a single numerical equation in there that would do it in the model. So you have to use this. Has anybody noticed that that Mike Vandar, the Dutch guy, talks with his hands all the time and Lou Armentano, the Italian guy, doesn't? I'm just heard.
0: <laughs> hey, Glenn, I was going to ask you, uh, yeah. you you listened to Dr. Armentano's presentation. What was maybe the key takeaway that you uh, you came away with, key learning from that? And then what's a couple things that maybe weren't answered for you?
3: I think probably the fatty acid conversation was probably one of the most interesting parts of it, quite frankly. You have a situation where essentially fatty acids are not depressing digestibility, correct?
1: Lou? Fatty acids are not depressing NDF digestibility and right. that, that's not really a change in anything. That had, was just sort of overblown in a couple of reviews, right? Uh, the fatty acids that depress NDF digestibility are like C14. Okay. which also causes cows to crash miserably, or at least in the U.S. diets. So. Well, I, th- I think that the challenge for the nutritionist
3: is going to be, as you say, maybe using the, the, the noggin a little bit, because if the model doesn't tell them if you feed too much fat, I mean, conventional wisdom used to be whatever, 6-7% would kind of be your upper limit, because everybody was concerned about depressing dry matter intake and whatnot. That, that some people are going to look at the model and, and make bad decisions, right?
1: We did leave seven percent in the chapter as sort of a recommended. Upper okay, limit. so that was that was actually one of my questions. Yeah. Was, is there well, still some guidance in the system? Yeah, to- so I mean, we actually left seven percent in as an upper limit. Uh, okay, it's rarely economical, you know, to even to be quite honest. I think it's rarely economical to go to that level. Okay, most people do that because they perceive a reproductive benefit. Uh, the um which may or may not be there uh that that I certainly can't come to any conclusion about that but uh you also have to realize that the data set so so there was you know I should say that there, there was none there was a slight depression of NDF digestibility okay I think there was one unit uh depression for each unit of fatty acid that was added okay so it's not none and that was for the I think free oil polymeric acid for example increases digestibility which is very interesting mm-hmm. right and and you have to realize that you know, scientists are—I think—are very conservative. Okay, when I do an experiment, I like to hit it with a hammer. So I'll, I'll go for some real negative controls and some, because I want to see a difference. Okay, you know, and then I, 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 I want to look at the treatments in between the negative and positive control that are different. Um, scientists are pretty conservative, so there's just not a hell of a lot of data out there where people are feeding more than seven percent fatty acid, right? Because they've all been told not to. With a linear effect, if you go much beyond that you know, then it may be a problem, right? But it's not really a, you know, it's not like a cut off, like a cliff. See, and I think that's what's very confusing about the fat things. People want to still think of it as a ramp, right? Well, this depression in short chain fatty acids starts right away, okay? As soon as you start C18 to a diet, you, you can get a diet as low in fat as you possibly can, which means taking out corn, right? Which is 5% fatty acid and putting in corn starch, which is no fatty acid, right? You can do that and get a diet down to about 1.5% fatty acid. It's hard, okay? Um, when you add C18 to that diet, C18 goes up, right? You are very low levels of C18 in the diet. You feed exogenous C18, it goes up. But the short-chain fatty acids go down, okay? Right away. So it's not – it's a balance of those two streams, but they're both pretty darn linear across the range. So I don't know if I cut your
2: question off, but that was –
3: no, 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 that's, that's perfect. Um, but,
2: and I would just point out too, that the, if you use the 2001 model, you could do the same thing. So, right. You could have added extra fat. We had no, there was no maximum upper limit that it would prevent you oh, from the, no, trying to feed. Right. So, right. so the software is no different this time. Either we'll let you do stupid stuff.
3: <laughs> I understand that. The other other thing that I was going to ask you guys about was, if if I remember and I interpret it right, in in the presentation you talked about that there's now an impact of frame growth on, I assume it's on, and I might have gotten it wrong, on lactation, milk production. Mike, go ahead.
2: Yeah, in the previous NRC, they talk about this in the chapter, okay, that that, uh, primiparous cow could have both frame growth, which is true structural growth of the animal, muscle, bone, everything, Mm -hmm. including some fat, including some gut tissues, including even some gut fill. That happens in a primiparous animal, as well as you can have reserve repletion, which happens in all cows, even when they hit maturity. Uh, They talk about that in the chapter. In Spartan, I did what the chapter said, but I guess I didn't even know this. filled me in on this that if you use the model that came along the disc that came along with the 2001 um it did not let you put in any frame growth for uh, for a two-year-old well you um, put so, it in but you well, said you didn't well, do anything you said yeah. how big she
1: was and you said how big she was going to be when she was older but if you change that gap nothing changed in the program I mean, I, yeah. I don't, you know, we do experimental diets and we use heifers, but we don't formulate different diets for the heifers and the cows. Right. When we do an experiment. So I never really specially formulated diets for heifers. So I didn't know that for the longest time. And then I decided, I think probably when we started doing the speed efficiency, I don't even know when, but I just decided to change it, maybe for a class. And I noticed it didn't matter if the heifer wasn't full grown or not in the in the computer part of the NRC model. It just didn't matter um so that was just an oversight I think but you know we have to realize that this brain growth is important right Mm -hmm. I mean uh even third I think this came out of a a study a multi-university study even in third lactation most of these cows are not quite their full mature weight okay and what 40 percent of our cows might be first lactation animals okay so they have a significant growth level they're still growing in second lactation and a little bit. They're still, you know, it's not much, but they're growing in third lactation. So, um, you know, I compare a third lactation cow as more like a, you know, 18 or 19 year old. You know, their major growth is done, but they're still growing a little still bit. Old. So, most of our cows, you know, still have some frame growth left, right? Yeah. Fourth lactation anyway. cows are going to be a little bit rare around here for some reason. So, yeah. uh, I'm going to pat Mike on the back. Uh, if he's not waving his arms too much, um, most of the terminology, shrunk weight, empty weight, there were so many terms in there that just didn't need to be in there, right? And it had just gotten copied over from the beef model as the simplest way to do it. That's not unreasonable, right? For dairy guys to turn to the beef people for growth. But it was just, you know, their system's a little different, and it was just so. Unneedlessly needlessly complicated uh, that and then they're separating out this change in in frame growth from uh, gain it's it's much better Mike you've done a great job now you can take credit for it and say exactly
2: what you did but it was thanks I just want to make one point about it though and that is that because of the different effect because uh reserve repletion is uh the the energy density of reserve repletion is much higher than the energy density of frame growth, probably about twice as high. But the efficiency of converting me to the retained energy of reserve repletion is also about twice as high as the efficiency of converting me to the actual retained energy of frame growth. So in the end, if the animals gaining weight, it takes about six megacals of net energy for lactation to gain a kilogram regardless of whether it's true frame or reserves. Ooh. What is different is that the frame growth requires more protein, it requires almost twice as much protein.
3: Yeah, The, the question, um, I guess, ultimately comes to the practical application. If you've got most of the the average cow is, what, 2.6, 2.8 lactations in a herd. The, the, vast the, average, majority, the vast majority of your herd is physiologically immature. Yes, right. And then how should, you know, so nutritionists you be a, looking at it?
2: If you have the ability to do a a two-year-old group, you should do a two-year-old group. And now the program will support that those animals ought to be fed a higher protein diet. Uh, The high percentage you heard is
3: going to be first and second lactation.
2: Yeah. I think second year, second lactation. Yes, they're still growing, but it is relative to their total requirement. It's not, I, I don't know what the energy bit would be, but it's, maybe 10 percent so in the end it probably you could just have all of your lactation two and older fed the same diet but it it would it would uh, promote the idea that we really ought to have a two-year group two-year-old group
1: so um, college professors love to think of all the different groups of cows we could feed and then yeah. nutritionists at least the ones in Wisconsin you know their their motto seems to be well if we only make one diet we can't possibly get it to the wrong pen Okay, so there's a lot of one TMR okay that's made, uh, and then grouping animals. You know, if you try to group animals in a rotary parlor and try to find the cow, she's in the wrong pen. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's a nightmare. But we did some uh, Victor um, Brera. Cabrera, yeah. Cabrera, thank you, did a, um, a field survey of how animals are grouped, right, and. The two most common grouping strategies is a post-fresh group, okay, and a first lactation group. So that first lactation group is actually grouped, okay? They're actually physically separated, all right? So maybe now if we came up with different protein levels for that group, um, they actually might feed a different diet to that group. It's not that they can't. It's not that they're going to have to group them on purpose. There's an awful lot of first lactation groups because, you know, people can see they're smaller, right? They might have I know in our barn, we actually have some smaller stalls, a little bit shorter stalls, that we put the first like ancient animals in and then they stay a little cleaner, being an appropriate size stall. And they're not around, you know, bigger cows that can beat them up when we have all Holsteins, right? If we have jerseys, then the jerseys beat up Holsteins. But but with the heifers and the cows, they're kept separate, so they could be fed separately. Um, But it is sometimes like, it's like trying to push a wet noodle uphill to get people to feed multiple diets. You're, you're grinning, so I, I assume you've seen this. Uh, oh, yeah. Yourself. <laughs> done that. But a lot of opportunities for this post-fresh group. You know, they're kept separate for management, and that's a place where you can, you know, focus on putting fairly expensive ingredients that, as long as they're not going to be in the diet for, you know, 300 days uh, are well worth the risk, right, in that early post-fresh group. Um, and then the heifers could easily be treated differently.
0: How long would they be in that uh, post fresh group, Lou? Ideally, you've got yeah, a magic they're, wand.
1: They're, you you like probably have a better idea than I do. I think the numbers, you know, set, with Mike putting up three. So I, I assume we three, three weeks. weeks. Three months, uh, uh, so, yeah, 30 days, you know. And I think if a cow's doing well, she gets out. And if a cow's doing crappy, she stays in. And of course, the pen is a certain size, right? So, I mean, all these things are, you know, you have a whole bunch of cows calving. Then it might be two weeks, right? You know, for the healthiest ones. So, um, you know, the flow of cows, uh, you know, maybe now with double off sync, we get cows pregnant in the middle of August more than we used to. I don't know, but uh, you know, the flow of cows is not steady, right? Well, there's a lot of other reasons for grouping
3: that group. Sorry, there's a lot of other reasons for grouping those cows in the post. Other than nutrition, Nutritionally. Yeah. Oh,
2: can I can I give a good example of one? Absolutely. Sure. This is when the uh, when you put into this model that you could feed a a high a high starch diet allows for greater intake in cows, but a, a diet that was say high in soy hulls or some other by, high fiber byproduct feed with lower starch actually in this model will give you almost as high of an energy density as a high starch diet because starch depresses NDF digestibility, you feed that byproduct fiber, you no longer have as much of a depression in NDF digestibility and the energy value of a high soy hull diet and a high starch diet could be about the same. But the high starch diet typically allows cows to eat more. So w- when you get to cows that are not quite as limited by gut fill in how much they eat, the model would support the idea that this is the diet you ought to include more high fiber byproduct feeds, because you get almost as much energy out of them as maybe a high starch diet. So feed save your high starch for the for the peak cows, and then if you need to, if 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 you can find fiber high fiber byproduct feeds cheaper, use those in your later lactation cows that have already hit their correct body condition score and you will also in the process uh, because the high fiber doesn't partition as many nutrients to body tissue, you could keep the cows from getting as fat. So I think this model will, we don't have that part, the partitioning part in the model, but um, if you read the chapter, that, that idea gets promoted and it makes a lot of sense to, to have another diet for cows that have hit their, their body condition score where you want them to be, milk production has maybe started to tail off a little bit, give them a high fiber diet. Uh, and by high fiber, I don't mean forage fiber necessarily, but, but a diet that, uh, will still promote milk.
1: You know, um, uh, the database really doesn't have a lot of, a lot of late lactation studies in it. You know, people do crossover studies and, uh, we tend to want to get reasonable milk production when we're doing those studies. So we don't do a lot of crossover studies with late lactation animals, and we don't do a lot of full lactation studies. Uh, I think, you know, I don't, I don't get out enough, Um, but we did do, I was involved with some field studies, reproduction studies and management studies. And um, it's surprising when BST went away, you know, we expected to see a lot more overconditioned cows coming in and we don't see that. Um, So there's something going on in the intake regulation, I think. uh, And maybe it's management oriented, I don't know. But if people are feeding one group group TMRs, um, you know, if you just look at the calculation of how much cows are supposed to eat, and then how much energy is supposed to be in the diet, some of them should be getting pretty fat, and yet they don't. Um, So I know that we, Victor Cabrera was doing some energy calculations, and I said, well, your energy can't balance. And we looked at just sort of projecting the intake using the days in milk depression which hasn't really changed a lot in this this new version no, it's the same and um you know if you looked at how much energy density would be there for a one group DMR if you fed that animal out to 300 some days she should be getting fat so something must be happening there so the obvious the difference between partitioning of energy there must be a some sort of lipostat you know that's telling the animal it's getting too fat. I apparently lack that, but cows uh, seem to have
0: that. Yeah. Lou, you kind of touched on uh, the fact that there is not a lot of uh, post-fresh cow data. Um, You guys can only build recommendations around data that you have. What What's some of the biggest gaps you identified in terms of research? Uh, What what gaps do you need to fill with research? What would that be?
2: So post, you mean post, not post-fresh, post-beak. Right. right well partitioning i think is one thing that we need to get a better handle on and i think that we could start to um if if you look at starch, especially fermentable starch which um, even our intake equation doesn't have fermented starch in there it has total starch we just didn't have enough data to really use fermented starch well in the intake equation but that i think that by the next NRC, hopefully there will be at least the ability, if we're going to, right now we predict energy allowable milk, right? In the model, we could, we could do a, we could perhaps say, okay, here's energy allowable milk, but based on the fermented starch, maybe unsaturated fatty acids in your diet, here's what I think, here's what the model could predict would happen to partitioning and therefore milk yield. I think that would be a, an interesting thing to see if we could move toward that. Whether we won't get it right, at least not completely right in the foreseeable future.
1: So, um, you know, one thing about and this is the reason why transition diets always been an issue, right? One thing about post fresh experimentation is that it's almost got to be like a, it's almost got to be like a randomized type statistical trial. okay? Uh, we do a lot of Latin square studies or, uh, some sort of switchback study, or at the very least we do a covariate adjustment for the data. Okay. That's because identifying where that cow is in terms of production level really removes a lot of variance in milk production from the data. So that makes the trials much more powerful. And I think people think that these long-term open-ended studies are more powerful they're not, okay? They're, I mean, the biggest source of variation is cow. And uh, I mean, what if for these genetic numbers, we, we needed like tens of thousands of cow records, okay? Cow is a big, big variable, okay? The other thing that I'll say is I like some of the things that uh, Mike Allen and, and now Adam Locke's doing it, maybe, maybe Mike Banders as well. Um, this, this looking at the level of production of the cows before the treatment, and then seeing how they respond to the treatment because there are some really interesting interactions there and of course that's very important from a term of grouping right if you have high producing low producing cows and they're going to respond differently to the diet um first of all you'd like to have them in different pens right so you can actually see the different response right well i suppose you could follow the cows individually by their you couldn't follow their intake but you could follow their production
2: yeah that's where the the high producing cows will produce more on a high starch diet. The low producing cows did the same thing, whether the diet was high in starch or high in high fiber byproduct feeds. With some is, of that's level
1: of production, some of that stage of lactation, it's,
2: it's yeah. hard to separate out. Can I say one thing about your, you mentioned that cow is the biggest variable. You now we have nutritionists don't do a very good job of using the information they have available to them from genomics, because if we could, instead of always using pre, you know, the first two weeks of, of milk production for a cow is your pre-treatment. And that's your, that's your covariate. And then you apply treatments and you see what happened. We could do more stuff where we started using what's the genomic prediction for milk production in this cow. Um, as our covariate in a, in a in a model with different treatments
1: yeah it certainly helps but it's not as it's not as powerful no, it's not as, as good
2: so that is good but we don't we often don't even try and we really ought to a lot of people also misunderstand you know you commonly heard this
1: phrase that if you got a a pound at peak it's worth 200 for the uh the lactation so you know you have to realize if you have two different treatments right and they're assigned to two different groups of cows in a in sort of a long-term study um you might get you, you might get a significant difference and maybe you got four pounds different at peak right well you got a significant difference and there was a four pound difference in the groups but maybe two pounds of that was due to the treatment and two pounds was random okay you never know right you could have a six pound treatment response And a minus two pound random response right so but some of that difference is random and that random difference is going to persist for the whole like patient right whether you give them a treatment or not right so you know nobody probably ever would do this but just take two random groups of cows and split them they're going to behave differently you know even if they have the same walking distance to the pen or you know the same pen size you know same stall size they just react differently just because random you know and hundreds of cows is not enough to wipe out random. Cows are cows are
2: quite different from each other.
0: Hmm. Gentlemen, has there been any uh, key discussion areas we haven't covered yet that, that the audience needs to hear about?
2: You know, I was gonna say one thing earlier about uh, the value of protein in the model. In the previous model, um, the only non-protein nitrogen was probably overvalued, especially, um, if you look at some pasture based systems where the grass is fertilized with a lot of nitrogen, you can get pretty high NPN levels in that grass. And, um, in the previous model, they gave urea, urea was a special feed. It got a, it got an energy value of zero, all other protein sources, regardless of how much NPN they had in them, we didn't worry about it. So when you look at the, the, a feed test lab gives you a, an energy value for a feed, it may have a lot of NPN in it, and it just predicts the energy value based on nitrogen, not worrying about whether it's true protein or not. With, with the new system, you'll be able to account for that.
1: I would like to say that this is a model, <laughs> and uh, it is not reality, right? The map is not the terrain. Um, um, we use an awful lot of existing experimental data, okay? which by its nature is an empirical uh, and more of an associative than a causative okay um, there are a lot of causative things that clearly have happened in individual experiments okay that are not included in the model okay they just don't show up in the general associations for one reason or another okay so people and and I think the chapters discuss I know the fat chapter does and I, I think the carbohydrate chapter does I mean it talks about critical experiments and things that people have seen they've really seen this this really happened in the experiment that's why they do statistics and every time you're on a farm it's your own little experiment right so when we do meta meta analysis we always put study in there right uh studies got to be treated as a random variable it takes out a lot of noise okay but guess what when you go back to the farm it's like you're another study so all the noise is added back in again okay um, So I would always go into a farm. I think the model's very usable. It's very understandable. It captures broad strokes, and then the parameters come from real-world data where we have, you know, measurements, right? Uh, It's where these things were measured, and the treatments that applied were, you know, whatever funding source the person had to work with, right, or whatever, right? It wasn't necessarily your farm or a random selection of farms in the US or a random selection of farms in in the upper Midwest where a lot of the data comes from. Um, So this is where, you know, Mike Allen's written these several papers called Minds Over Models. And I think this is where you just need to be aware, you know, there's thumb rules and they're great, okay? You know, thumb rules are there to design to keep you out of trouble, right? But the flip side of thumb rules is conventional wisdom and you know conventional wisdom. Some people say that's C.W. I say usually it's B.S. Okay, uh, a lot of times it's just flat wrong. Okay, um, and you know one example I could point out to is you know if we look at total fat in milk, we come up with this one story. It's not true. Okay, clearly not true. If we look at the individual short-term, long-term fat. so people need to be able to think out of the box. Okay, the model is another kind of box. Okay. It's a good box but it's a box and uh, listen to the cows so uh, terry howard always told me listen to the cows they don't lie okay and um you know, say there's one other thing in the whole energy carbohydrate section i think that there's a was a tension in the committee and i think there's a tension in the in the industry and that is you know are we inducing acidosis right you know we see if the black and white cattle come in and they have a lot of liver abscesses, does that mean our herds are routinely acidotic? Um, I think those of us who measure pH on cows that we think are reasonably healthy, right? In our university herds, you know, we are pH 5.5. We don't go, ah, uh-huh. we go, yeah, that's kind of what you expect her to be, you know, a couple hours after she ate a big meal. And so um, I don't know if the people who get a lot of milk out of cows are just the ones who manage to, feed a diet that may be nutritionally acidotic, but somehow all their other management comes in and they can, you know, surf on that edge and go really fast for a long time. And then other people find they have to back off because they can't manage it. I don't know the answer to that. Okay. But, um, I always talk about when you're feeding carbohydrates here, you know, to get more energy in a cow, that energy comes in the form of volatile fatty acids and Volatile fatty acids are acids, okay? You know, they have a PK of 4.8, they're acidic. Uh, So it's impossible, it's impossible to have a lot of energy going into a cow without having a high concentration of volatile fatty acids in the rumen. Just like it's impossible to optimize microbial protein production without having a level of ammonia that's gonna spill over into the urine, right? There's just innate inefficiencies there that if you wanna operate you know, full speed, um, uh, then um, you have to live with some inefficiencies. And ultimately, they're not inefficient because high production, you know, dilutes out maintenance so much that it dilutes out your fixed costs that, in fact, it is economically and biologically efficient to go to these high levels. But
0: All right. And with that, Stephanie has called last call. So what I'd like to do is ask each of you to kind of, give us, you know, one or two key takeaway messages for for our audience. And Glenn, why don't we start with you?
3: Well, you know, I still think that the fatty acid discussion is going to be something that a lot of nutritionists are going to have to bone up on, and there's going to be a lot of new stuff on that. Uh, the other one I think that is, I don't know, I think it's going to become more important is uh, this, this whole, you know, ecology thing, right? The, the methane and reduction in methanogenesis, and, you know, that that somehow, in some way, some shape, some form, I think will push us towards better understanding of the impact of specific fatty acids on methane production in the room, and I don't know what that looks like, but I think there'll be a lot of interest in that, uh, clearly, in many states already, there's there's concern about the levels of methane production, and and there'll be some efforts to to utilize some of that information and maybe
2: help
1: yeah interesting that uh, uh we we really downplayed the effect of fat on NDF digestion yet it's having a major effect on methane production right mm. hmm. that's kind of interesting right uh it's you know maybe that's because it does it on protozoa I don't know right yeah you, you brought that up and, earlier Lou and I thought that was well, a good point <laughs> and if it decreases the protozoa what's it doing to choline flow you know I mean I you know so all those things are I yeah. put a little plug in there for ball camp. but I mean yeah and I think the other thing is to be hard this this is the energy fat discussion but people wrapping their mind around the amino acid balancing is going to be uh, a real educational opportunity, I think, for people too. So yeah. I think the energy chapter, honestly, is just so much more straightforward and simpler and easier to understand that um, it's actually gonna be a relief. Look forward to reading it. Yeah, it's it's uh, I didn't really realize Mike was that good a writer, but it's actually really quite good. I,
2: I did have help from Bill. I just got to point that
1: out bill's a fantastic editor bill kept cutting stuff but i you know mostly chalk up the success of the energy chapter to the fact that mike and i have been discussing it for so long that you know he finally learned oh, stuff I'm sh-
2: yeah i'm sure you know, in I mean, the end lou does deserve almost all the credit for it probably right <laughs> i think that was
1: obvious anyway but yeah um, <laughs> no it, it really shows that mike had taken the previous nrc and incorporated it into spartan okay that kind of nuts and bolts dealing with the model uh, and at the same time dealing with reality, um, you know, it really showed a very good job on the energy. jet, right?
2: Oh, thanks. My last comment would be is even though we think it's an improvement, I still would, I agree with what Lou said. Uh, You know, don't, don't just trust the model. You gotta, you gotta watch the cows and when you make a diet change, Try to figure out what they're telling you. Sometimes it's hard to measure, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try. Watch watch the milk production, watch milk composition, watch intake, watch body condition score. Whatever you can measure is gonna be helpful, but watch the cows.
1: And just realize we have not been playing with a functioning model for 10 years, okay? we've been playing with a functioning model for about a month and a half. Yeah. Okay. You know, so, uh, uh, if you see something, say something, <laughs> that's what I would say. Cause there's bound to be, there's bound to be mistakes in there. And I think
2: uh, NRSP
1: nine will do a good job of, of, yeah. uh, you know, fixing things or are just pulling wrong. Right. Uh, and then identifying things that need to be improved.
2: So both Mark Hannigan and I are on, uh, NRSP nine and we'll, we'll be looking at if we see things that just seem like they need to be fixed soon we'll be able to do that not of course to the official NASA, but we can change the software if we need to so and it'll be some sort of revision of the NASA software and NRSP9 is separate from the National Academy
1: but uh, they'll be sort of hosting this uh, and they made some improvements uh in the last software you know for example it, I think it was written to run on DOS or something like that and they made it so it would work in Windows 10 or so um that's absolutely essential that somebody's there riding gun on this and there's a place to put I wouldn't call them complaints but you know observations
0: uh yep. Lou any final comments you want to put a bow on this for us
1: uh just you know as good as the energy chapter is the fat chapter is clearly better but other than that <laughs>
0: that's a shocker
1: <laughs> and again mike uh, really does talk with his hands a lot which i find very right. yeah no i appreciate paul kept doing this it was fun and yeah, I appreciate the it was very useful
0: yeah right, a lot of fun and yeah i want to thank you gentlemen this has been long awaited but it certainly did not dis- disappoint uh Also wanna thank our loyal listeners for stopping by at the Exchange once again, and hopefully you heard something new and maybe something you can even take back to the farm to help your customers. As a reminder, we continue breaking down the new 2021 eighth revised edition of the Dairy NRC over the next coming weeks. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the new episodes. If you'd like to pre-order a copy and receive a 25% discount, uh, visit balchem.com slash real and click on the NRC series for a link and the discount code. If you like what you heard tonight, please remember to hit the five star rating on your way out. And don't forget to request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt. Just like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange. Send us a screenshot along with your address and shirt size to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Our Real Science Lecture Series of webinars continues with the ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month. Visit balchemcom slash real science to see upcoming, upcoming events and past topics. We hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange, where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends. And where's my bottle of scotch? Oh. <laughs> <laughs>